0: Well, Brandon, clearly one major talking point in the game. Everybody been asking for it. We've got VAR. And is there yet more drama to come here? I'm obviously really, really happy with VAR.
1: Ask ask to the VAR people, please. Don't ask to me. For me, it's very clear. VAR is for, say, is good or is not good. The VAR brings
2: the truth to the game and everybody accepts it.
0: All right, welcome to the VAR podcast. Today, um, I have somebody of uh, great importance in football, if or soccer, in Illinois. Um, I've known him for roughly I think two or three years um, now. Um, We've coached against each other. Me as an assistant, he as a head coach, and uh, he's brought me in to do one of his camps before um, here at Almo's College. Um, Just. Just to give you a little bit of a background, um DT, do we call you DT? Do you want me to call you coach? D- coach D. Tomaso? What what are you comfortable with? Yeah,
2: probably start with Coach D. Tomaso and mm-hmm. then you can call me DT after that. Just, so, just so <laughs> okay, everybody yeah. knows who the heck you're talking well, to.
0: Well, no, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, everybody around, I think everybody around Illinois, if you say DT, there's only one DT around in Illinois. But um, the first time I met i met you was in fact i was doing my my national diploma one summer here at uh, almer's college and he was the head for the premier the pre- the premier licensed participants and as i was doing my national diploma so it was rightfully so we were all looking at him to try to <laughs> we trying to get on his field because that's where we wanted to go but just over the years i've obviously i've I've come across with some of your assistants that I've made friends with and just hearing good stuff about him um, uh, is the reason why we're getting to this point right now. So uh, Coach Di Tommaso is a head coach of uh, Almer's College in Almer's, uh, Illinois. He, I believe he founded this program uh, back in 2004, I believe, uh, founded this program. He's received coach of the year probably three or four times. At this point, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh,
2: I think, yeah, two, three times.
0: So. Two, 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 three times, uh, been to the conference, basically started, f- he's your typical story of starting from scratch and then making this uh, a vigorous program that players can come in. So, uh, Coach DT, thanks for... Joining me for this VR podcast.
2: Certainly. It is a pleasure to be here and I appreciate you having me.
0: No, awesome. And 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 today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the college game because he is been through it. He understands it. He knows probably the, the, the one thing I'm delighted or probably excited to hear you talk about is where do you think it's going to go relatively to soccer in this country? Uh, the role that it's played in the beginning. Uh, and kind of just how you started and why you um, decided Almer's College was the one to kind of plant your your feet in. So let's just talk about a little bit about your background in, in soccer. Um, where, di- where did you start playing? Uh, where did you play? So, so other people just know exactly who we're talking to.
2: Yeah, great. So, you know, I'm happy to tell everyone that I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, which was arguably uh, one of the three hotbeds of U.S. soccer uh in the in the 80s late 70s 80s and early 90s and uh, i attended oakland mills high school where i won multiple state championships and uh you want to talk about a a cauldron of competitiveness yeah and each and every day uh having to fight for your position fight for your fitness fight for everything that you wanted uh oakland mills was it our our coaches were way ahead of their time Uh, Bill Stero, one of the legendary coaches that now lives in Colorado, Mm -hmm. uh, won 14 state championships in the state of Maryland um, and won national championships. Don Shea, (coughs) same thing. Oakland Mills High School holds the uh, Maryland record for winning the most state championships of any other high school in the state. Uh, And on my high school team alone, we had two national team players, and multiple professionals: Dante Washington, Clint Pa. Yeah. Uh, the list goes on and on. So, as far as where I where I grew up, that's where I got my competitive edge, and where uh, I, w- I was groomed mm-hmm. to be the the player and the coach, you know that i that I went on to be.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: so that was a, a very interesting place. Yeah. Uh, to be at the time.
1: Yeah.
0: No, that's that's <laughs> that's fantastic. So, what brought you to Illinois first, and then when did you decide that you actually wanted to start coaching?
2: Yeah, so I so I went off to uh, Ohio State, and then uh, and played there, and then went to Jacksonville University in Florida. And when I was in Jacksonville, I got the opportunity through through contacts to have uh, an opportunity in Germany. So I went over to play professionally in Germany, and that then brought me back to the states where I continued my pro career. <clears throat> um, in what was called the Select League, the A League, that yeah. sort of thing, prior to MLS, and uh, played played indoor and outdoor. But I but I got my first uh, collegiate coaching opportunity at Wofford College, which was a Division One school in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Yeah, that's what kind of sparked my uh, collegiate opportunity, and you know, uh, I kind of led me to the next steps. Uh, however, uh, when I retired from playing. It was a it was a choice. You either get a college job, or you go into business and do something different. Yeah. And so when I was at those that crossroads, uh, the the job presented itself here at Elmhurst through uh, a, a contact of a contact, and As it, it happened. And it happened within five days. Wow. And I found myself in in Illinois uh, within seven days of a phone interview mm-hmm. and flying here and drove out here, but I was the women's coach here at Elmhurst first okay so there was a coach prior to me here for the women's program but he literally was here like six months so yeah. I tell everyone that I started the women's program from scratch because I basically did yeah um and my women's program was one of the top programs around and uh, uh it, and it, it, it was a great opportunity for six years to be the women's coach and mm-hmm. then I was presented the opportunity to uh, uh we were the only school in the CCIW College Council of Illinois and Wisconsin that. Did not have men's soccer. Yeah. So uh, uh, a lot of history here. Our our president at the time, Dr. Brian Curitan, came from Hartwick in New York, where he was the provost. If anyone recalls, Hartwick was one of the top programs in the nation in the 70s and 80s, which is where Jeff Tipping played. And a lot of other big time coaches in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, So he had a grave love for soccer. And he wanted me to start the men's program from scratch, so I did,
0: and uh, the rest is history. Okay, well, okay. So let's let's talk about that conversation. <laughs> so you're having a conversation with him. He said, "Okay, we want you to start a men's program." What's the first thing that went into your head?
2: <clears throat> so the first thing that went in my head is, you know, everything I do within my men's soccer program or any soccer program for that matter is is run as a business. Okay. And so the first thing that I sat in his office and had a conversation with him about. Was the business side of the program? I will not start the program unless I have a proper budget to go into mm-hmm. this. I will not start the program unless we get a brand new turf complex, mm-hmm. which was a million dollars at the time. I will not start the program unless um, you know we have other resources to recruit in year one and year two. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much turned around and guaranteed him that we would win if he gave me those resources. Yeah. Um, we then. Got a new million-dollar turf field, (laughs) and he gave a proper budget and gave all the support that I needed to go out and uh, recruit. And in our first year of existence, we finished 13-6-1 and and third in the conference. So that in its own right with 32 freshmen and four
0: transfers. And that's how it worked. Okay. So you, when you speak to someone like you, there's, there's so much to unpack because there's so much experience and knowledge that's twirling around in your head. And just from that statement, I have so many, I have so many questions, but I kind of want to stay in line. Okay. I don't want to, this could become a whole day conversation, right? but um, this, and we'll jump back into this later in terms of recruiting, but how do you recruit players for a brand <coughs> new program? Like, how do you convince a player that doesn't maybe know you as as a coach? Don't doesn't know what you can offer them, other than the academia of the school. But how do you say this is the place for you to come when you're completely brand new?
2: Yeah. So when you go into any you know meeting with a person, you, you 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 want to establish that that spark or that relationship right from the start. So what you say, how you say it very similar to meeting a, a female for the first time. Yeah. You want to have that spark, you want to generate a relationship. So yeah. it's no different when you're trying to establish that with a player mm-hmm. uh, of any gender for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that by establishing relationships very quickly mm-hmm. and having people understand, you know, what you're about from the start, a, a person first mentality, um, a sh- structure, a program that's run by standards Mm. and not rules Um, those are things that are very attractive to to parents and players Um, but like anything else when you when you start from scratch you have to get people to trust you Mm. and that's the key word is trust right and trust is one of those paramount things on the field a player doesn't get playing time unless they're trusted Mm -hmm. and they have to be trusted by their teammates and they have to be trusted by their coaching staff Mm -hmm. so when you start a program from scratch you obviously need players and families to trust you mm-hmm. that what you've set out what your, what your mission is and how you've laid out a path to success mm-hmm. that you're going to be able to achieve that mm-hmm.
0: and then in terms of bringing players into Amherst, um, what are the type of players are you looking for um, that you knew that would kind of fit into this new program but also be able to be a little bit more comfortable yeah. in, in, in Illinois in Amst
2: yeah, so we are um, absolutely national recruiters, um, and now most recently international. But national recruiters because of our location. This is obviously a paramount location because the the train is twenty one minute ride into the city. Uh, you have you have access to every major highway. It's just a great location. So people are attracted to the city, uh, and that fact. So we've had a lot of success bringing in players from currently seventeen different states on our roster. Wow. Um, but uh, it, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, thing that you want to bring in players uh, with two different types of, two types of players, I would say. So mm-hmm. we recruit players that are being players or becoming players. Okay. okay? And it's very interesting because a, a being player is a player that has distinguishing characteristics that set them apart from everybody else, and they can be successful maybe from the start. Mm-hmm. A becoming player, is a player that has maybe a couple exceptional abilities, but still needs to fine-tune four or five mm-hmm. other abilities, mm-hmm. and as a coach, can you see those things, and can you say, absolutely, I can get that player you know, to the next level? Okay. Uh, and it's an art, right, to find. Uh, it's not an art to find the being players. Yeah. Anybody can find them. Right. It is an art to find the becoming players. Okay. And so you talk to a guy like a Bill Belichick or guys like that, that, do just that Mm -hmm. they take players that are second tier and turn them into first tier yeah based off what they see so that's exactly how i do it
0: yeah now this is (coughs) from what you just said this is the reason why certain i know not all but certain college coaches are actually kind of geniuses because you don't have a lot of time to develop that player into what you think it is so how do you do that
2: well, developing players is, is, in the college game is, is a very difficult task because you have to also recruit players that are self-motivated. Right? Okay. So when, when players come here for visits um, from day one, I make it very clear that as much as you might be interviewing me and my staff and mm-hmm. my institution, I'm interviewing you. Mm-hmm. And I'm interviewing you behind the scenes. I'm watching every move you make. I'm watching every mannerism you have. I'm watching how you treat your father and how you treat your mother on the on the visit I'm watching everything about you because I need to know that you're self-motivated <clears throat> self-motivation is obviously one of the major keys to to becoming you know a top level player in any division and then having an opportunity to you know go off into the pros um, so that, that self-motivation piece is 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 pretty important
0: it's pretty key and then in terms of are, are you recruiting specific positions or do you sort of diversify the role a, a kid can come play in once, they, once they come into your program?
2: Yeah, so that's that's another great question based off of you know position-specific kids that think they're a striker or think they're this or think they're that. There's really only a couple distinct positions, in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, and one of those would be a pure striker, right? A kid that is just downright dirty and scoring goals and does this and does that you don't want to take him away from that position Mm -hmm. another another position might be a center back position where a guy is just you know he's already certified as a center as a center back and then of course a goalkeeper right Mm -hmm. so those are the three positions where maybe they're just standard from for some guys but other than that no way I mean the college game is open to uh and I'll give you two quick examples. Johnny Brem, one of the top players ever playing in our program, Sinking Spring, Pennsylvania, uh, could have played in MLS, mm-hmm. had people after him after being here. He won uh, a national championship with the Fire PDL, mm-hmm. and he was a striker and a, and a number 10 for us, and he played right back yeah. for the Fire. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, And then you have Christian Mullen, who came in here from Michigan, who came in here and told me, Coach, I'm a striker, and this and that and the other, and I told him, Christian, you couldn't put the ball in the ocean if you were standing on the beach. <laughs> and within three weeks, I turned him into a center back, and he played center back for three years, and he became first team all region. Right. And uh, he's an unbelievable center back. Yeah. So you know, because he really wasn't a striker. Somebody told told him he was, but he but he wasn't that yeah. pure striker that we talk about. Yeah. So it's happened hundreds of times. Yeah. Within our structure.
0: So do you do you do you sort of go through that journey of? Uh, Sort of teaching the fluidity of the game to a player over—I mean—and a lot of this, I know, it depends on the player's ability to adapt and understand what you're going to do. But again, I mean, you—you you don't have a lot of time. You—you you, you have a, a few, maybe a few weeks in the spring. They come back in preseason around August, and then you're there for two more months. Right. Um, but you have to get results, and you don't really have time to put a player in on the field who what doesn't understand exactly what you're trying to do. So as you are recruiting, are you thinking, okay, you know, he's a freshman now by maybe junior year, he might come right. Or does it really depend?
2: That's tough because we're always going to recruit talent. There's, there's no question that you always have to recruit talent. Um, I've I've been a coach for a very long time at every level. And I got to tell you, if you don't have talent, you're, you're not going to win very many games. Um, you know, I can, uh, I can manufacture players. In fact, I've been, I think, a fantastic coach at manufacturing players and maybe having to manufacture results, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but you can't live that way forever. So you really do have to continue to recruit talent. As far as the development of, of the players, again, um, you know, having them develop on their own and you know, every program in the country has captains' practices and mm-hmm. other types of things where players have to, you know, again try to develop on their own. Maximizing your time when your time is allotted to you via NCAA rules is also very important. I, I truly believe a lot of college coaches are lazy mm. um, in in what they do um, and the time that they give to their to their players. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, you know, you can do position-specific training. Uh, with your players as well, mm-hmm. and if you don't maximize that in the time time that you have, um, then you know shame on you. Yeah. Your defenders need to be trained as defenders. Your your midfielders need to have midfielder training. Your mm-hmm. strikers need to have striker training. Mm-hmm. And if you're not putting them um, in those position specific areas to to get better mm-hmm. mentally, physically, uh, you know, cognitively in a different way then I don't think you're developing your players in the right way.
0: Yeah. Okay. What do you tell the 17th, 18th, 19th, to however big your roster is players that are probably going not going to get a lot of minutes in the season?
2: Yeah. So we, we as a program decided a long time ago that we were going to spend money on reserve games. So we don't have a separate team within our program, but mm-hmm. we do invest in reserve games. Reserve games are vitally important to the development of players. Okay. Uh, again, I encourage any college coach to have reserve games, just figure out how to get a donation to pay for the referee, whatever you got to do. Yeah. But reserve games are critical for the players that you're talking about. Okay. Every collegiate player needs to get match time. Um, they can't prove themselves in practice all the time. They yeah. need to have the ability to play in matches and develop in matches so that <clears throat> um, what, they're, what they're hopefully learning in training has an opportunity to come out. Okay. Um, so so that's, that's pretty important to you know, generate uh, those reserve games. That'd be the number one thing.
0: Yeah, because a, a lot of athletes, when they're in high school, they get told, you know, you might get recruited, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to play and you need to be okay with that. You're saying that college coaches should be a little bit more responsible to those certain players. And see, this is a difference. I, I always say there's a difference between a really good college coach and an average college coach. I think a lot of coaches think, oh, I'm in, you know, I'm in college now, whatever, whatever. I do what with what they can They blame the NCAA, but don't look for other opportunities. No, So you have
2: to, you know, back to my business comment. When someone tells you no in business or they tell you no to a sale, Mm -hmm. they're not saying no. You have to figure out a way to still get that sale. Mm. It's the same way. When someone tells me, no, you don't have any more money to spend, I'm like, well, I'll find the money. Right. If I need to play three more reserve games and I don't have money for a referee, well, then I'm going to figure out how to get that money donated. And pay for the referee. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. So you've got to figure out ways to to be more successful, mm-hmm. and and you know and make those sacrifices. Now, I'm not saying coaches should you know sacrifice their own financials or anything like that because um, that's I think that's disrespectful to your family also because coaches obviously don't get paid probably what they should get paid. You're right. Um, so you have to be very cognizant of of your own self um so i truly i truly believe that you know uh point as well but the second piece of that too i think is communication so you asked about what do you tell these players yeah well we can guarantee players that every single player in our program knows where they stand at all times Mm -hmm. there is no player that comes in my office ever and says dt why am i not playing Mm -hmm. it simply never happens Mm. Every player, freshman to senior knows exactly why they're on the field, why they're not on the field, and what it takes and what they have to do to get on the field. Yeah, it's that simple.. Wow.
0: Um, <clears throat> speaking to oh well if you if you see uh, a player that has been part of his program, <coughs> excuse me, um, recently I was I spent time with one um, through this winter. The one trait that you see is the work ethic of your players. No matter where they are, they're just really hard working. And I think that uh, sort of draws into your character as a coach and what you instill into the players. Um, When you know the players that you're coming into the program at the beginning of preseason, what is the first, maybe two or three things that you know that you need to instill into the team before you get into specifics of, of the game? What, what, what are general things that your team a DT team needs to have in order to at least begin the season with before you get into specifics?
2: Yeah, so the, the buzzword of, of grit, right? <clears throat> I mean players players have to get have grit, but but players also have to have tenacity. Um, we have five universal success traits in our program, and they are the five universal success traits of any successful business from Apple on down. Mm-hmm. And those success traits are, are discipline, mm-hmm. tenacity, implementation, focus, and desire. And so when we start off, we talk about those things. Mm-hmm. And you know, every new player doesn't understand those words and doesn't understand what it takes to to give or produce those words yeah and it is a monumental task to be consistently ferocious and ferociously consistent Mm. okay and that's how i say it and um i think that's a very interesting way of always saying it to my players yeah um but, but you have to be that way. That doesn't mean you're out of control. That means that you are in the moment. That means that you are, you are just so consumed with practice and wanting to have success. And, and you know another thing I tell players consistently is that if you don't love to practice, mm-hmm. then leave now. So you ask me what I tell the players on the first day?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: This is what I tell them on the first day. If you don't love to practice, mm-hmm. there's the door. Okay, any player that I have come across over the years mm-hmm. that has been successful has loved to practice. Yeah. Okay. Ugh, I mean, I can just go on and on with with players that love to that love to practice. Yeah.
0: What about the ones that that fall short? The ones that, perhaps, maybe think, "Oh, what did I sign myself for?" How do you deal with those ones?
2: Well, when you operate with standards, as I said, um, you you have you know words that come to mind for standards are you know aspire and empower and grow and be positive. Those are those are standards, and so unfortunately, the the team becomes self-driven. Mm -hmm. and so those players end up removing themselves Mm. from the program really not having me to remove them at all yeah they see that they don't want to give so that they can get later on so therefore they remove
1: yeah
0: okay so uh dt obviously runs a youth club as well um chicago empire um so these questions are obviously going to jump in between youth and obviously college. So he doesn't just do college. He understands youth as well. When is it the right time to implement those standards in terms of youth players and at what, and and how high do you hold those standards at that age that you're about to answer the question right now?
2: (laughs) It's a tough question there. Um, I, I think that from a youth standpoint, you know, you, you always want to start off by trying to develop a, a culture with your youngest players. Yeah. And by developing a culture, you, the, one of the first things you want to develop in that culture is hard work, mm-hmm. you know, and their ability to work hard and love the game at the same time. So here's an interesting thing I spoke to parents about over the years. <clears throat> when my three children were very little, yeah, uh, and all three are very good players, you know, when they were done a game, I've listened to hundreds of people over the over the years and everything else say, you know, hey, ask your kid when they're done, did they have fun? Yeah. Well, I 100% disagree with that. Okay. The only thing you should ask your child when they're done playing is, were you the hardest worker? Mm. When they are four, when they are five, when they are six, when they're seven, they're eight. The first thing a parent should ask him is, were you the hardest worker today? Yes. Okay, great. And then you say, well, I'll tell you what, you certainly look like you work hard out there today. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of you. That's what a parent should say. Now, if they want to ask him if they had fun 15 minutes later, that's totally fine. And then say it in a way that is again like this, John, did you have fun out there as well today? Because you certainly look like you were having fun. Yeah. yeah, dad, I had a lot of fun too. Okay. Awesome. So what you're trying to do is you're obviously trying to train the brain at a very young age to understand that if you don't put in the work, and if you don't run, and if you don't you know, work hard, and right. you don't have that type of mentality, then it's going to be much harder later on yeah. to get it.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
2: that
0: was so good. That was so good. Wow. Okay. So there's no, as, as early as your child is participating in the sport, you can start implementing the little things that are eventually going to lead to what they need to know and understand by the time they reach college.
2: Unequivocally, I've been running youth camps for 23 years. <clears throat> and in the three and four-year-old age group and five and six-year-old age group, I train my coaches, no matter who they are, Yeah, college kids, whatever it is, to consistently ask the kids, are they working hard today? Blah, blah, blah. But also, did they have fun? I'm not, I'm not saying we don't talk about having fun. The curriculum yeah. is still, you know, based off of fun. But we also do talk about, you know, were you guys the hardest worker today? And when I come over to those groups, mm-hmm. that is the first thing as the director that I always ask the youngest players. I say, guys, I'm expecting you to be super hard workers today. Mm-hmm. I want you to be like lions. I want you to be like tigers. In fact, everybody tell me the hardest working animal that they know. Right. And that's the animal you're going to be for today. Right. See how I do that? Right. So all of a sudden they're resonating with an animal and they say, wow, I'm going to be like a tiger today.
0: And it's in the language that they'll be able to and understand it's
2: in it. the language. That's exactly That's
0: right. so good, man. That is so good. As a coach, that is very good. Okay. Parents. The youth developing player parent versus the college kid that you're trying to recruit. Okay. What is, how, how, is there a difference in the way you're talking to that youth developing player parent and how involved they are if they are involved? If they maybe overbearing, whatever that whatever they bring to the table, how do you? I don't want to use the word control, but manage uh, the the journey and understanding the development that this player needs to go to, as opposed to a kid that you are trying to recruit. I'm assuming you interview the parents as you're interviewing the players as well. How do you manage those parents that are coming to your program in the uh, in, in in your college team? And what are sort of maybe the differences between the two? Do you, do you understand what I'm talking about?
2: I'm not sure. So the, your question is about the youth, <clears throat> parents and players, and how I'm grooming them.
0: How, how, how do you and as you're grooming the, the, the player, how are you grooming the parent?
2: Okay. Got it. So let's start with that piece. So um, I am a lot of the same strategies are used within our club structure and okay. what I train. Uh, our coaches to do so within our club. By the way, I think it's vitally important. You know who you, who you hire, and I can confidently tell you that Chicago Empire has hired uh, a staff that is second to none. Uh, every single one of our staff members has a master's degree. Every single one of our staff members has a particular license that they have to have. Yeah, they are also very groomed in the cognitive development of children. And the cognitive understanding of parents, and we go as far as giving them information and having seminars in how to deal with these things. So you're
0: educating your parents.
2: We're we're educating our parents, but we're also educating our coaches consistently to deal with those parents. Okay. So when a when a player comes along, we we always are great communicators with the parents. When you the recruitment process or the dream of wanting to play college soccer, you know I believe that starts probably about freshman or sophomore year. Yeah. Now, kids you know, have dreams play college soccer when they're 12 13 14 but that's not super real yet yeah <clears throat> when it becomes real is when you have to start communicating with the parents as well so we have one-on-one meetings with our with our players twice a year after those one-on-one meetings we also have a brief meeting with the parent to say here's how the meeting went here are some of the things John said to me mm-hmm So that you can help be supportive of their drive and determination to want to play college soccer. Again, it comes back to the word trust. If you're running an appropriate club soccer culture and environment, the parents should have a level of trust from the coach that guidance is occurring. At the same time, you know, using the word an open door policy, that's tricky sometimes. Yeah. But If you truly do have an open-door policy that parents are allowed to email you with questions, call you with questions, etc., and you have a responsibility to get back to them right away, then everything's going to be fine. And we do. And so there are many clubs that fall short in player development to get their players to play college soccer because there are lapses and gaps in communication with parents and excitement in the coaches understanding that we are trying to drive player development to get them to the next level. Yeah. Now, your club might not. There might it might be a recreational club. I understand that. There's different types of clubs. In our club, that is part of our mission. Our mission is to give and get kids the opportunity to play college soccer. Second half of your question is regards to, you know, collegiate players and parents and during that process. Yeah. Players have to take the responsibility to communicate with parents. If I'm finding off right in the beginning that the parent is emailing me rather than the player, or the parent is speaking to me rather than the player, I immediately put a put a squash to that. And you know, the key word is being polite, being businesslike, but being matter of fact. Yeah. Example, Mr. Johnson, I really appreciate your communication. However, I do not want to hear from you again. If I'm going to continue to recruit your son Phil then Phil has to contact me from here on out I'll contact you in regards to a campus visit particulars etc cetera, etc cetera, which is part of your job mm-hmm. and once you're here you're welcome to ask me any other questions that you would like but we need to get Phil to take responsibility for himself and this recruitment process because if he doesn't do that then he's not going to survive when he's here as a player yeah so that's kind of how that works.
0: Uh, a lot a lot to unpack there. The 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 parent that is finding a little bit hard to trust um and their child uh seems to uh let's let's just say for lack of better terms, they they disagreeing with the coach and the sort of like the culture at the club. Um are you of the mindset that if if you're not if you don't want to be a member of our culture, perhaps maybe you should find something else, or do you spend a little bit more time educating that parent and as well as obviously that 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 player as well?
2: I unequivocally believe in exhausting two to three more opportunities to explain, compare, contrast, mm-hmm. ask. For them to see it from a different lens, maybe the coach needs to see it from a different lens, and so <clears throat> it should continue to be a a constant um, a constant piece of communication between everybody to see if we can come up with a solution or get on the same page. Oftentimes, when things like that happen, it is a simple miscommunication issue. Uh, it's a he said, she said, and didn't understand what yeah. was said. Yeah. So therefore, you know, when you have clarification on things, sometimes things come to light and then problems are solved, you know, very yeah. quickly. Uh, parents, you know, again, parents are always going to have a different lens of their, very few parents are going to have the same exact lens as a coach. Um, if you were a high level athlete yeah. as a parent, then oftentimes those are the ones that are easy to deal with. Because yeah. you'll say to them, hey, what are your thoughts on where he is? And the, and the parent will say, I agree with exactly what you say on where they, they are. It. Because they get it. Yeah. Right. And the parent that doesn't was not a high-level athlete. Yeah. Maybe a JV high school player or something like that. And they think their player is much better than they are. And so, therefore, we have to explain that.
0: Would you care explaining how you explain that? <laughs> the, the, the The reason why I ask that question is because this, we want to... My next question will be about hard-developing cultures, um, which you, you broke about about. But let's, let's just start there. How, how do you tell a parent that their measurement of their kid's ability is not real? But at the same time, you want to keep them.
2: Yeah, well, it's, look, I, I say this to people all the time too. It's, it's very easy for me to make tough decisions. Okay, yeah? So that's interesting because it's not, <clears throat> that's not uh, the norm for most people. Right. Yeah? It's very easy for me to make tough decisions. So having those types of conversations are easy for me. And I, yeah. I do it in a way that is, is calm, is nurturing, is still matter of fact, but Placing a kid on a path to be a successful person first in the club environment. I'm not talking about college. I'm talking about the club environment. Yeah. 14, 15, 16. We want them to be successful people first as well. Forget about the soccer component. For, right. Forget forget about the pay for play. If we lose them because of you know they're a much better cross country runner, then so be it. Yeah. And I'll go back and give a 30 second story. My high school coach. When we had tryouts, I'll never forget this as long as I live, mm-hmm. We, I told you the level that we were at, we were ranked number one in the country, my high school team, number one. Okay, Went out to tryouts one day, big, tall, lanky kid, came out to tryouts. He was ultra fast. All the good players were like, oh, my God, who is this guy? Yeah. But all of a sudden, when we got the ball out, he wasn't very good. However, when we did the fitness test, one of them was a, I don't know, three-mile run or whatever the heck it is. And the guy runs like five minute miles around the thing. Easy. And the and the and the kid comes back, and it was the third day of trials, and our coach walked up to the kid and said, John, you need to go now. You're you are cut from the team. There's the cross country coach right over there.
1: Right.
2: I've already spoken to him for you. <clears throat> His name is Mr. Callahan. Go over and tell him who you are, and you are now on the cross country team. I'll never forget that as long as I live because the it wasn't our coach being rude it wasn't him being mean mm-hmm. it was him recognizing something that was going to be a lot more beneficial for a person and he put him in the right spot yeah and the kid went on to be a great cross country runner so i feel the same way when i'm when i'm when players are within the club structure man i really see some attributes in your son yeah that he could do much better if he chose this if he wants to stick with soccer that's fine. Yeah. But here's what you should expect. So, using the right words are critical in in communication with yeah. parents. Absolutely critical. Because if you say the right words, then parents don't feel demeaned. They they don't feel put down. They don't feel like their son or daughter is a failure. They feel like actually, hey, I feel pretty positive about this. Yeah. Coach is saying they're this type of player. Expect them to do this. They're a B team player for lack of a better term. Let's let them thrive on the B team. Mm -hmm. Let's let them still do music and let's let them, you know, be in the chorus and let's let them do these other things and let them enjoy soccer Yeah. at the same time. And if you have a place for them in your club to house that, then there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So, um, I'm, I'm still a proponent of high school soccer. Um, We're not going to probably get into that debate today of the DA versus, you know, high school soccer and all these other things. But, you know, I will make a statement today and tell you that I I believe in playing high school soccer and, you know, not for the elite, elite player. I believe that if you are a special player, you should not play high school soccer. You should go play with the best players and do the best things and do all that. I truly believe that as well. But for 98.5% of the population, you should be playing high school soccer to represent your school. Represent your family, represent your community, yep. represent your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Have your parents come watch you play, put on your Letterman jacket, be a scorpion or whatever the heck you are. Mm-hmm. And those things go a long way in your personal development as, as, as a athlete and just as a general person in society.
0: hmm Again, I said, speaking to this man, I knew we were gonna run into this problem (laughs) where there's just too much to unpack because it gives so much knowledge on just every sentence. Um, I wanna move forward, but before I move forward, tell me where you stand with this statement. If coaches believed more in development over making money, who would have better players in the country? Now, before you answer that, I had a coach, who you actually know, said to me about that statement, they said, he doesn't care what motivates a coach as long as the coach is good. What do you think about that?
2: I, I like that statement. Um, so I'll work backwards. I like that statement. But at the same time, one of the things I, I truly believe in is you know paying coaches well. But if you pay coaches well, they need to be held accountable. And so <clears throat> that that's like anything else. Um, you don't get a sales job in computer software, and you're not held accountable. You either make the sales and get paid well, or you don't make the sales and you go find something else to do. Yeah. Well, it's it's very similar. If if you're going to get paid well, then you need to produce. And remember, production is not is not measured just by wins and losses production is measured in in so many different ways yeah our pay-to-play structure in club soccer is not going away i don't care about what article has been written in the united soccer coaches i don't care what expert has said whatever they're going to tell me it's not going away Um, until u.s soccer comes up with two billion dollars and says that they want to take over you know uh, and, and put a club in every single state in our country and operate 50, however many states now, 50, 50 clubs in our country. Yeah. And they have the means to do it, and they can train all the players in the exact same way and blah, blah, blah whatever they want to do. Pay-to-play is not going anywhere. Right. And so, um, but you need to be able to differentiate the coaches that are just doing things for a paycheck mm-hmm. versus being invested in the players and their job and really what player development is. Yeah, But that's my job as an executive director, to vet those coaches. Right. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, yes, it does make sense. And how do you vet it?
2: Well, you you vet them by providing what we've talked about before. I mean, you you, you vet them by asking the right questions. You Mm -hmm. vet them by holding them accountable and telling them that these are the standards for each day and this is where you need to be and this is what you need to do and you outline those job responsibilities. <clears throat> and if you can't hold to those job responsibilities, well, we're going to reevaluate you and reevaluate you and see where you where you stand. Yeah I'm not a micromanager and I don't believe that you should be a micromanager with um, running a club, but you but you certainly have to have the right amount of staff meetings. In the right amount of interactive staff meetings and collaborative staff meetings, and so what I believe a club should be doing all the time is having each coach mm-hmm. present. Yeah, each coach present to the other club members, mm. and so you know that is a big part of a coach being able to express themselves to the rest of the staff. Yeah, on a different topic, et cetera. I'll bet if you took a took a, a a big you know test of of uh how many clubs do that i'll bet you it would be in the 10 percent or less yeah
0: and i know i actually know that <laughs> from from because i i learned my trade in i call it the school of new york red bulls and in new york <clears throat> red bulls every staff member uh every tuesday and thursday you're taken through the ringer so they don't pay for your licenses but they they educate you as you're part of the system um through their curriculum but that's exactly what they do in front of everyone um and it's interesting how coaches react back and forth to that but anyway so let's get into to to coaching development and obviously we'll we'll go into how you are are we okay for time absolutely yeah all right time you need so when i when i went uh when i did my UFAB b in germany the first thing that they told us was um, if uh, coaches are like players, there are some players who can play, um, at, um, the highest level. There are some players who can only play in the amateur league and in in between. I feel like here in the states, people assume that if a coach has uh, United Soccer Coaches Premier or USSFA, they they are an elite coach. What do you think about that?
2: So your question is in America, people feel if you have a premier light premier diploma or a U.S.S.A. license, you're you, an elite. You're an elite coach. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's a tricky question because um some of my peers out there might might not like this statement, but um in the in the eighties and eighties and nineties, A licenses were handed out like they were uh, you know free cotton candy on the streets. Yeah. Okay. So you basically had to pay for your A license. You showed up and you did some things and somehow you, you know, you got the A license. Yeah. Um, So, you know, quite possibly there's a lot of coaches out there between the ages of, I don't know, maybe 38 and 65 that have an A license that should not have an A license. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a tricky situation. Now, I believe that, a lot of the younger coaches and people now coming up through the ranks are, are much more educated than they were back then. It's a much more rigorous program now. Right. <clears throat> it is, um, you know, uh, very finite in the things you have to produce and what you have to say and how you have to present it. Um, so I believe that we're, we're obviously on the right track and yeah. producing, you know, better, better coaches. So I, I will say that, um, you know, it's it's tricky. I mean, I think that I think soccer is one of those one of those games where, if you were a high level player, you probably have a better opportunity of being an effective coach. Okay, um, and and I truly believe that because um, I've seen a lot of coaches. I've had some coaches, unfortunately, that can't kick a soccer ball from here to there, and they were very, you know, ineffective. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to refrain from giving out any names, but please don't. <laughs> um, but it's not a uh, it's not. It's not a good situation. I. I think that when a coach can, can say to a player, "Hey, I'm one of the coaches that when I'm out at training, if I tell you I want a ball driven sixty yards right there, I'm going to show you how to do it." Yeah. If we go out to striker training and I want you to receive the ball in front of a mannequin and turn and bend the ball upper nineties at pace, I'm going to show you how to do it at forty-seven years old, mm-hmm. so that you can now, you know. Visually see how it gets done, right, and then execute that type of thing. So, I mean, again, X's and O's and, and and the whole deal. Yep, I know there's some players, but still, most of the most of the coaches that you that you come across that are that are very very good, still played at a pretty high level. Okay, they they did that are in positions of um, of stature, right. Yeah. They did. They they played at a pretty high level. There's there's not too many coaches, and I'll I'll build on this to make a comment <clears throat> that I I still believe that there's a huge void in coaches' ability to coach in the game, to coach a game. Yeah, I am shocked at the inability of coaches to coach in a game and to make adjustments and do different things. Now look. I'm gonna be my biggest critic, right and I'm always going to take responsibility if I make a mistake for my college team or whatever the case may be Anyone that knows me knows i I will absolutely uh take responsibility for things yeah um and and it's it's just shocking to me um to to see to have coaches that have some high level licenses yeah and they can't still see the big picture and they're missing the the small things that affect the game. Yeah. So as you said, we could probably be here for 13 hours today talking. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> but you know, player development is different than winning. So let's talk about that for a second because player development is way different than winning. Yeah. And I and I am a coach that believes in figuring out ways to win. Okay. So what that means is is I could care less What coach says to me? Oh, you guys just kicked the ball down the field, or you guys did this, or you guys did that. You didn't knock it around and pass it sixty-four times and blah. Wait a second, your your goalkeeper stinks. Mm -hmm. Your center back is a bumbling boob, Mm -hmm. and so the way to score on your team is to get long throw-ins and corner kicks. And cross the ball in the box whenever possible. Right. So those players can make errors and we can score. Now, last time I checked, the objective of the game was to score. Right. So there is an art in coaching mm-hmm. to figuring out how to score mm-hmm. on the other team. That doesn't mean I have to go to my statistical analysis software and see that we passed the ball. 700 times during the match, and the game was 1-1. Right. I didn't win. Right. I could care less that I passed the ball 700 times. Mm -hmm. Your job as a coach when you are in a position where you're trying to win is to do everything in your power Mm -hmm. to solve the equation or the puzzle of how to beat the other team. Right. So do it. Right. And you shouldn't care about what anybody says. That I mean, that's what I truly believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I no, I agree because, you know, a lot of coaches they'll lose a game and then they'll say they'll say something like, Oh yeah, but they keep hitting it along to that fast player and that fast player scored all the goals. And then, and then my next question is, Well, why didn't you solve that problem? That's
2: exactly right. Problem solving is a two-way street, whether it's defensive or it's not defensive. I'm a coach of being unorthodox. If I see a player, even in the youth game or whatever, that needs to be man-marked, well, then I'm going to bring my guy over and I'm going to say, here's your job. Your job is to man-mark number 17. If he goes off the field to get a drink of water in his car, you're going to go have a drink of water in his (laughs) car with him. You are going to man-mark this player and this is what we're going to do. I don't care what we look like. None of that matters. So again, fine, you know, fine line between what position you are in as a coach, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're in a player development situation or you're in a position of winning. But if you are in a position where you are supposed to win, stop talking about how your team plays and how you look and everything else. right We my captain benched a player during a game in two thousand and nine in our championship run. He pulled a player off the field without me pulling the player off the field Uh because the game plan 100% was to drive the ball to their right back every single time we got the ball in the first half. Yeah. That was the game plan. Follow the game plan. And he couldn't follow it. He couldn't follow it. And our central midfielder captain literally grabbed him by the jersey. You're done. And pulled him off the field. Yeah. And I said, you're done. Sit down. Yeah. And I put somebody else in. I said, "Are you ready to follow the game plan?" "Yes, sir." "Sounds good. Let's go," and we win the game. So,
0: can you strike a balance between the two, between <clears throat> development of a player and winning a game? Is there a gray area? <clears throat>
2: well, again, it's. I think that's. I think that's a little broad. It's a fair question, but I still think it's broad because mm-hmm. it. It's still. It, it's also situational, right? So. When you play, if you're playing in a semifinal or a final of something, Mm -hmm. if it's a youth, you know, let's say it's a U14 game. Well, if it's a U14 game and you're in a semifinal and a final, well, what's your job? You're in a semifinal and a final. Right. So what are you trying to do? Trying to win. You're trying to win. Yeah. So now things change a little bit. When you were in the prelim stages, okay, you were still in it for player development. You were trying to see how you could do that. Once you get to this stage... Now we're trying to win. Yeah. And the coach has to be the person that puts his stamp, you know, on the game. Um, and I guess I could throw a question back to you. How many how many times you've been on a sideline mm-hmm. and and listened to what coaches say? Oh. Oh. I mean, it's shocking. shocking. So if we took a poll again of all the coaches that were at a tournament and which coaches had B licenses or higher, and then we had microphones on the sidelines. Right. I think we would be embarrassed as a as a country and we would be in shock. Yeah. We would. Yeah. Because the things that come out of their mouths are, John, why did you do that? Or but I could, oh my God, I could say a million different things. Right. Yeah. And most of the information that comes out of their mouths, my answer to them is, well, why didn't you teach that in training? Right. You're you're saying things on the field that should have been covered in training. In training. Yeah. And so it makes no sense. Yeah. Don't don't say why to your player there da, 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 because if they should know.
1: Them, yeah. What's the
2: point? They should they, and, and that's the that's the approach.
0: Yeah. So. in the college game is a two win.
2: Well, for all the coaches that got fired this year, I'm sure <laughs> it's uh uh certainly about winning. Yeah. Um, I know two to three coaches at this moment that are on the chopping block and have physically been told if you do not make the conference tournament or if you do not win the conference championship, you are fired.
0: Is that a good or bad thing for the college
2: game? Well, it's a good it's a good thing if they were not held accountable prior to that. Right. So, unfortunately, other college coaches aren't going to get my sympathy because if you go back and look at if those coaches have been given that ultimatum, Go look at what's happened the four years prior.
1: Yeah,
2: right. So there's not too many programs that are going to do that to you if you have one or two bad years, and we know why or whatever the case is. Right. But when you have a job for nine years and you are consistently under 500, yeah, or consistently not producing the way you're supposed to produce, right? Then absolutely, I agree with that. Um, You're not doing something right. Yeah. Remember, part of being an effective coach. And a leader of a program mm-hmm. is reinventing yourself right. and constantly doing self-evaluation and changing the way you do things. Yeah. And if you're not open to that, you're doing yourself a disservice. I can confidently tell you that I've done that three times now within my men's program. And I've even hired and brought in outside people. To evaluate what I'm doing and to give me fresh ideas, Mm -hmm. or I will bring on an assistant that has a different lens and I'll ask them to come to one practice a week and come to the game and do this and do that so that I can get sort of a self evaluation completed. And each time you do that, you tend to be
0: better. Okay. So again, Four questions. Um, First one, I'm glad you said that because there's obviously this notion that people, one of the problems about the college game is that there's coaches that have been in that position as a head coach for so many years. And people say that that coach being in that program is sort of like blocking the next best coach to come out, uh, whether it's in that region or certain coaches are not getting their opportunities because there are coaches that have been head coaches for colleges for a lot of years, whether they've done well or whether they've not done well, they've been there because they, they do right by the college, they're bringing the right recruits, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. They're comfortable, their family's there, their kids is there, they're in that community for years. Um, do you think that a coach should eventually leave a post despite, I mean, if obviously you've answered them, if they're not doing well, they should not be there. you've answered that. But even if they are doing well, do you think that there's a time where a coach should leave to allow the next one up to, to, to take the reins
2: in a, in a perfect world? That's a that's a valid question. But we are currently not in a perfect world by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So you're you're basically asking a coach to step away from something where he might have worked his entire life to get paid $120,000 a year. Yeah. And um sacrificed a lot to stay in his profession. Okay. And just for uh uh I'm not going to say an impatient kid, but <laughs> but but to give up a job yeah. for an impatient kid that wants a head coaching job. Yeah, I don't I don't buy it. I, I don't I don't believe it. Yeah. I, I said it before that you know positions are earned, opportunities are earned, mm-hmm. and um, yes, I think that every coach should have some type of secession plan, and if that secession plan could be supported by the administration of the college or university that they're at, then that's a great plan. So yeah. if you have a coach that's been there for a long, long time and he goes to the administration and says, hey, look, I really like this guy that, you know, whatever. He's our assistant associate head coach or whatever it is. <clears throat> I really think we should have a plan in place. You know, I only want to work three more years for this reason, this reason, and this reason. Yeah. Um, you know, let's talk about this so that he knows – You know, if everything continues to go well and he does things correctly, he will become the head coach of the program. I will move out three years from now, two years from now, whatever it is. If you'd like me to stay on, is it so? If there's a succession plan in place, right, then I'm all for it. But otherwise, I'm not for it. Yeah, I made a decision to be in this profession, I made a decision to stay at this institution mm-hmm. for 21 years currently. Yeah. I made a decision to do that. So I could have gone elsewhere. I could have, I get that question all the time. Why are you still the coach yeah. at Elmhurst 10 years ago? Why aren't you the head coach at so-and-so division one? What? Because I'm not an ego driven type of Oof, coach talk about it. from that standpoint. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not ego driven.
1: Yeah.
2: I'm able to accomplish the things I want to accomplish. Yeah. And have a family and do the things that I wanted to accomplish by being at this institution. Yeah. And this is a fabulous institution. It stands for all the values that I believe in. And it allows me to uh, expand my footprint yeah. and express myself and do the things that I want to do. Hopefully, I've made the institution proud. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I strive to be the best I can be every right. day to represent you know, Elmhurst College and the community that, you know, I'm a part of, but I I truly believe that positions are earned and it's, it's, uh, it's no different than any other profession. So people can whine and cry all they want that they're not getting an opportunity. Uh, Uh, but unfortunately there's only so many jobs in the country.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, with your, with your experience and your resume, you could go division one. You've never never had that desire you never watched the division one conference game and thought you know what maybe it's maybe it's time for me to to go up at that level and make your mark at that level you've never thought of ever wanted it
2: I can confidently tell you that if I made any jump at all it would have to be to the to the highest level so it would have to be in a very competitive conference, in a very competitive arena, yeah. where pay is very competitive <clears throat> across the board. Yeah. It would have to be that type of jump. I'm not interested in being a Division One coach at a low level. Right. Um, I believe that the level that we are at here is a comparable level. Right. Is a very good level. You You know for a fact we just produced two professional players out of my program. Yep. Well, that's pretty darn good. Yeah. So... You know, it's a it's a situation where of course all those things cross your mind at one time or another. But I can tell you that my value system mm-hmm. is very different. Um and, and and I'm pretty sure you have me on because you know I'm very candid. Yeah. Very, <clears throat> so <of> <laughs>
1: I'm
2: I'm also candid about saying that, you know, I, I have a wife and three kids and I'm not casting stones and I'm not, you know, saying anything by making this statement. But the yeah. amount of coaches that I've seen over the years that have been divorced or families are broken up or whatever it is because they have put coaching first is tragic. Yeah. And I will not be a part of that. Yeah. And so this platform allows you to understand what's the most important thing first. Yeah. You can be a single guy. Fine. You want to be a single guy and, and be a coach. I have no problem with that, but you know, I have a family, I have children. Every one of my children should have a Five twenty nine plan to go to college. I want to have retirement. I I can go on and on. Yeah. I gave a presentation at the United Soccer Coaches Convention five years ago now, and it was called um, uh, Money Tactics. Yeah. And it was all about how club coaches have no money plans. Yeah. Zero. They don't even know what a Roth IRA is. They don't know what it. And all those things are. And it's not a good situation. Yeah. So you get involved in soccer to, quote unquote, be cool. And it's not cool when you're 40 and your 401k or your Roth IRA says 50 grand. Right. That's not cool. Yeah. Because now you're going to be battling the rest of your life and you may not ever retire.
1: Yeah.
2: And so, you know, I, I made a decision to... Scrap all that and be very successful from a business perspective.
1: Yeah.
0: That's really good. Personally, side note, that's very good because as a young coach myself, that's what, <laughs> that's literally what I have been battling with for the, for this whole winter. <coughs> Just figuring out, you know, having a young family and what decisions to make based on, based on my family. And it's also how do I, how do I do the things that I need to do for where I want to go versus making sure that my family is correct? So that's that's brilliant. I personally thank thank you for that. Wow. Okay. Um, I hope everybody's le- learning as much as I can because I'm learning more than anybody else. But I love this type of stuff. Um, do you think that the college game is still vitally important for the professional game in this country?
2: I, <clears throat> I absolutely do. Um, now, let's take this in some steps. So the biggest thing that just occurred, which was positive on the Major League Soccer side, was the new collective bargaining agreement yeah. that allows the minimum pay to go up. That was a critical step because now players have the viability to live in a city like Chicago and get paid, I believe it was somewhere around 70 or 80 grand. I think it was 80 yeah. grand. So now you can absolutely live on that type of money in, in a rookie contract or you know whatever it may be. Yes. Um, I still believe that that should be some type of trickle down effect. <clears throat> to allow players to be uh, and it may sort of be this way. I'm not crystal clear enough so I don't want to speak out of turn. but if you're not going to go to college, then you should be you should be able to be owned and drafted by a particular club. and then you should be provided the opportunity to play on their USL affiliate. yeah, and you should be able to and you should still be paid. A living wage to develop. So you may not have been drafted and fall under that rookie contract, but you should still get paid a living wage, whatever that is declared to be. Forty thousand dollars a year to play on the USL side to see if you're gonna develop. Maybe that's a three-year deal to see if you're gonna fit into the puzzle and you know get into MLS, and then you go from there. So I'm working again, I'm working backwards here. So For the majority of players in our country, let's go back to the way I the way I look for players. Right, yeah. being player, becoming player. You know, that's what a professional coach does. By the way, a professional coach in Europe looks for those types of players in that manner. Yeah. It's just at a different level. Okay, so <clears throat> most players in our country fall under a college level player. Right, they're not they're not pros. Yet, so the model that I agree with with Sasha at Maryland is uh, the model that I support. I've already supported that with my athletic director, and I will support that in anybody that asks me the question. Yeah, that we absolutely should be going to in Division One, Two, II, and Three. We should be going to that fall, winter, spring model. Yeah, that obviously allows us to develop players a lot better. It allows us to all the standard things I've already said. It allows us to be healthier, allows the players to have more time to study, allows the players to be, you know, uh, have more recovery time, all the things that, you know, that go along with that proposal. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with. Yeah. And not to mention the weather is a much better situation. <laughs> right. In both segments, then. Yeah. Where you're not dealing with things in November, you're not dealing with things in, you know, so that is a is a much better platform yeah. for collegiate player development, which may then lead to um the production of more homegrown you know, players for our country. The other thing too is the is the um and I don't know how much this has been talked about. If anybody wants out there in the podcast wants to contact me on this, but the I'm interested to know what happens to collegiate players because of this model, where you play for three months, tops, and all of a sudden you have a ton of time off. Yeah, What does this do to your mental state yeah. as a player? I believe you become disinterested. I believe that you can fall into other traps, yes. such as more binge drinking, Yes, more marijuana smoking, more getting off the path or also straying from soccer and becoming interested in other things, which may drive down your determination to continue being the player you want to be. Right Now, maybe that's not a bad thing. All of a sudden, if you develop an app and you say, I want to quit soccer and develop my app and you make a billion dollars. Okay, well, but that's a one in a million. Exactly. So I truly believe that the way it's structured now that it's not mentally appealing to players and they become just disinterested. So it
0: has to change.
2: So it has to change.
0: And if it doesn't change, then should they be dropped? Should they be dropping the draft?
2: Should they be dropping the, the draft?
0: draft? If, if the collegiate game does not change, it says mm-hmm. where you are, where you only, Oh, just eliminate the draft. Just eliminate the draft. What's,
2: I mean if I don't I don't I don't know if I can really answer that because I'm not involved in MLS. I mean I don't know rule wise if they have to have a draft or how that kind of works. I mean obviously there's not a draft in Europe. Right. You're just finding players and, and off you go. So yeah. no, I don't I mean I think they had a I think they established a draft because every other sport in our country has That's a draft. True. Um and so I guess no, they don't have to have a draft. The whole key then would be to have You know, U.S. soccer establish scouts just like everybody else has in Europe. And I think U.S. soccer currently has 90 scouts or something. I don't know what the number is. I'm pretty sure it's what I read. But, um, you know, they should up that to 350 scouts around the country. And those players should, or those scouts should be scouting players, you know, at collegiate games and doing other things and, you know, finding players in pockets and then simply offering them contracts.
0: Right. So, so remaining with, um, the fact that here in the states sort of our pathway to professional sport is through college more so other sports than 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 soccer um other than you know making the seasons a little bit longer going you know winter and spring for all those reasons that you spoke about do you have any other ideas where college coaches can take more of a responsibility to developing players so that by the time they go to professional level or not we are actually competing with the south Americans with the Europeans etc
2: that college coaches can do yeah you know there's there's a there's no answer to that question because of NCAA rules so when you're interviewing a college coach you have to understand that anything I say can and will be used against <laughs> exactly. me, right? So yes, the bottom line is that unless a college coach operates within the rules, then they're obviously in trouble. Right. And a division one coach obviously has a better system than I do as a division three coach yeah. to develop players. They have a little bit more time. They have a little bit more of, of what they need to do to develop players. Um, but I, I don't believe there's a whole heck of a lot more they, they can do other than what we spoke of earlier right. in making sure you have a reserve games and you're you know you're doing all those types of things within the, the structure of the of, of the rules. Um, but I, I don't know that there's anything else they, 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 they can do. do. You yeah. have to be as effective as you can be as a coach. That's within when, the lines. Within the lines and yeah. when, in the time that you have.
0: So it's important that the governing body, as you said, you know, as a coach, you, you, you might bring an assistant to give you a different perspective and stuff like that. Maybe the governing body needs to also be thinking of ways in which they can enhance the experience for the student-athletes in a way that is good for the country in the long run.
2: Well, if they're if they truly want to be what they say they want to be and stand for, then you are a hundred percent right. Yeah. If they're in it for control and if they're in it for, you know, those types of things, um, and just sticking to their own bottom line, uh, then you know, then that's a problem. So yeah. they should be supportive of the system and getting players and you can see right now that they've been making changes because yes. the cages have been rattled with know, transferring and all and all the other things that have come down the pipe. Yeah. So that now they've been challenged finally for the first time and they're they're going to bend, which they've been doing, yeah, but they won't break. Soccer, unfortunately, doesn't have the same platform as the other sports because it's a non revenue producing sport. Yeah. And on the men's side, okay, there's twenty five programs in the country that get a thousand people to show up to their games, but that's that's still nothing, yeah, everybody else on the on the women's side and the and the men's side at most other levels we're lucky to have three hundred people at our games. right exactly, so it's a non revenue producing sport
0: <laughs> coach dt i mean i I appreciate it again, we could be here the whole day and just I, I didn't even get into the soccer nerd stuff um but I think what you gave us is important. My last question to you would be, where to now like your kids obviously getting older they're gonna be independent go on their own what for you personally what still drives you to keep coming to to your office every single day is there something else that you want to achieve um, in the long run that keeps you motivated and and, and keep uh, going into sport uh, let me let me say uh, again we mentioned a little bit earlier in the beginning but he doesn't just coach he he lectures, he teaches for different organizations. There's so many other stuff you do, and I'm assuming that from all those things that you do, you get, you get a little bit out of it. But for you personally in this, in this sport, what else do you have to give and what else do you want to achieve?
2: Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I, think I still have a lot to achieve here. Yeah. I think I still have a lot to achieve with the immediacy types of things that I'm doing. Um, you're right. My kids will be in the next, you know, three to seven years. <clears throat> they'll be they'll be done. Yeah. Um, my job is to continue to support them and enjoy this time with them, watching them participate, watching them, you know, do fantastic in the classroom, and watch them matriculate and all the other neat things that they do. Yeah. Uh, for instance, one of my sons has uh, just won his second award for Model UN. Yeah. at Hinsdale Central, which is a big deal, and he's only a freshman, yeah. and it's at the University of Chicago, as a matter of fact, yeah. and my son just won his second award, Model UN, so, you know, as I've explained today, um, I'm, I'm not just a soccer guy, I'm, yeah. I'm very, very broad-based, and <clears throat> my, my own children are pushed in different directions to be exceptional in sport, but exceptional in all the other areas they do. Yeah. Which brings me to answer this question that, you know, I still have a lot of passion. I, I, am I'm, I'm success driven. Um, you know, I'm motivated by, uh, achieving things every day. Yeah. Um, if you put me into a three on three game, I want to win <laughs> at this age.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: I want to win and I'm angry mm-hmm. if I don't win. Yeah. <clears throat> and so. I'm I'm still driven to this day in those in those areas, um, you know. Eventually, I, I look. I, I see myself as a <clears throat> really as a, as in the highest level. I see myself as a defensive specialist. Yeah. So we didn't talk about this today, even though I was a midfielder as a pro and even played up front a little bit. I'm a defensive specialist, and so you know I'd love to have the opportunity at some point to be a defensive specialist at the pro level. Yeah. And I really believe I can give a lot in that area. Um, I see a major void yeah. when I watch professional soccer on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. I really, really do. The offensive side, the midfield side—you know—in transition, um, you know, a, a, a person, a, a high-level coach a long time ago, taught me about how you split the field. Okay, I split the field in fourths. Let's learn something today. Okay. So I split the field in fourths. Okay. I do not believe that the field is split in thirds at all. Yeah. So everybody talks around the world as the field being in thirds. Uh It's not. It's in fourths. And you need to split it into fourths because there is so much that happens in the offensive fourth of the field, Mm -hmm. which is basically the 30-yard line and in. Yeah. And then from the 30-yard line to midfield, that is another section of the field. That needs attention. Mm-hmm. Then from midfield to the other 30-yard line, that might be your defensive side of the ball. Mm-hmm. That sector or section of the field is very different defensively than your final fourth of the field very defensively. True. Very true. Your interactions with players, mm-hmm. your engagement with players, your decision-making with players, where you would drive players, what you all the finite things are not being attended to yeah. at the highest level. I can do that. Yeah. So, are there any pro coaches out there listening? <laughs> that, that's something I no, want to you do.
0: no you're right because if you look at sort of like maybe the top defensive coaches in the world, someone like Diego Simeone who does exactly the same thing. I think coaches assume that if you take care, especially in the Italian game, if you take care of the middle to the sort of like the middle to the thirty yard. If you take care of it properly over there, then you wouldn't need to take care of the 30 to your goal in the defensive half. So they assume that. But you're right. The game is more minute than than just that.
2: Assume nothing yeah. in the game. And and you have you have much different responsibilities in that fourth of the field yeah. than you do in the back fourth of the field. <clears throat> and so you you have to do all the all the small things. Yeah. to to get the big things right. Remember every small thing you do leads to a bigger thing. Yeah. And uh you know and so again we could talk all day but mar- marking on free kicks and marking on corner kicks and these types of things too. Boy that's it's it's a real deficiency. Yeah, so no. I'm 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 hoping that that's an opportunity that I would have down the road. No, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely.
0: I, I would I would love to come back and just talk soccer nerdy stuff. So that I can I can pick your brain a little bit about different different things and uh,
2: well I'm um, certainly happy to come back come back and be on the podcast at any time I, I think down the road I'll I'll try and write some type of book as well I can't really tell you what that would what that would entail or what that would be but yeah. I'm, I'm interested in expressing you know more more of my thoughts and and opinions but I'm I'm
1: happy to be here at any time awesome thank you DT you got it appreciate it.